This episode of Cheat contains references to the Holocaust and misconduct in cults that some listeners may find triggering. So just a heads up, you might want to choose how and where you listen to today's episode. It's the early 2000s, and Tony Donnelly is on a secret mission for the BBC. Must have been 100, 150 people in the hall. He's in a building off of Oxford Street in London's West End. You know Oxford Street. It's famous for shopping with all the high-end brands, luxury goods, and a whole lot of tourists. So Tony's in this big room. Everyone around him is wearing white. But the group is segregated. The women are on one side of the room and the men are on the other. They all had a piece of red string around their wrist. And then Tony notices someone. She walked in, um, attractive woman. The energy in the room changes. Everyone seems to be buzzing as this woman walks over to the other side of the hall. The only woman wearing a hat. Suddenly, a rabbi starts to speak to the group. And the rabbi said, everybody had to turn and face to the east. Tony glances at the people standing around him. Everybody turned and faced to the east. And then they all start to chant. Chernobyl. 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 Yeah, you heard that right. They're chanting Chernobyl the site of one of the worst nuclear disasters in history. And the idea was that their collective power and the light would go to Chernobyl and rid that part of the world of the radiation. And they believed it. It gets even stranger. Tony looks over at the women's section of the hall. Leading the chanting is the woman in the hat. She seems completely comfortable in this weird scene. And if you haven't guessed it by now, that woman is Madonna, the one-time material girl now smushed into a hall of other followers chanting together to channel light to the Ukraine. What in the hell is going on? I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this episode, we're looking at a wildly successful cult that attracted the likes of Ashton Kutcher and Madonna and the undercover mission that shined a light on the dark side of their organization. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Who doesn't want a better life? Hell, I do. I think most people are trying to work to better themselves and their situation. A lot of us make sacrifices for the unknown. Sometimes it gets hard, working jobs you don't like, doing things you don't want to do, but we hope it'll pay off in the end. We talk about it a lot in this series, from the hipster grifter to Marion Jones. All they've wanted is to succeed, no matter what it takes. But that road to success is too much work. 
so you may be tempted to find an easier way, and that's usually how a cheat is born. Well, back to today's story. Imagine someone comes along and says, you know what, life doesn't have to be so hard. We can show you how to be a better mother or a better husband with minimal effort. They also say that the results are guaranteed if you follow their steps. Then you see celebrities and the ultra-rich and powerful following the steps too. Would you be tempted? Would you cut off your family and donate money that you really shouldn't be giving away? All in pursuit of a better life? I bet you're thinking, nah, I wouldn't fall into that sort of thing. Sounds like a con to me. I'd spot it right away. But it's easier to fall for something like that than you think. This is the story of how one nonprofit organization had a tasty recipe mixed with religion, mysticism, and human psychology and hooked some of the biggest names in the world. My name's John Sweeney, and I'm an old-school reporter. John has worked on everything from documentaries with the BBC to the Hunting Ghislaine podcast. My motto in journalism is I poke crocodiles in the eye with a stick. And if they're not a crocodile, but, for example, a lump of wood, nothing happens. But if you poke the crocodile in the eye with a stick, then something interesting normally happens, and that's fun to watch. It's the early 2000s, and John is walking around London looking for some of those crocodiles to poke when he starts to notice something. And see kind of good-looking people, uh, never never poor people, wearing a, um, a little bit of red string. Soon enough, John starts seeing celebrities like Ashton Kutcher wearing the red string as well. Demi Moore, I've heard of her. Ariana Grande and Frankie Grande. More and more of these celebrities are being photographed by the paparazzi, and when you zoom in, boom, there it is, peeking out of their shirt sleeves, that red string. Britney Spears, Roseanne Barr, Mick Jagger, Naomi Campbell, Paris Hilton, and Lindsay Lohan. You know what's crazy is, I remember these famous people wearing these cheap-looking bracelets, but they were celebrities. So you assume that they were expensive or the latest fashion trend, even though it looks like all of them bought the same bracelet from the airport on their way home from vacation. John thought this was weird. And as you know, he's always ready to poke a crocodile in the eye. So he starts researching. We started sort of building up a case and talking to people. And he finds the organization at the center of it all. It's a nonprofit called the Kabbalah Center. They've got branches all over the world. Run by a rabbi named Philip Berg, the Kabbalah Center is based on Jewish traditions and teachings about the essence of God and God's connection with humanity. But they put some extra flavor on it that's really not supposed to be there. So there is something called Kabbalah, and basically it's a kind of holy Jewish mysticism, and it's very recondite. You have to really know what you're doing inside Judaism to understand it. And what the Kabbalah Center was doing is saying, well, that's nonsense. Anybody, wherever they're from, whoever they are, they can plug into it. The center is open to everybody, not just Jewish scholars or even people of the Jewish faith. No background knowledge required. And at the heart of it is an ancient spiritual wisdom that's supposed to lead members to lasting fulfillment and happiness. 
This is a clip from the Kabbalah Center's YouTube channel about their purpose. The light of the Creator wants every single one of us to have complete goodness, complete fulfillment in our life. And if you connect properly with the light, then your life can be immeasurably better than what it is now. I'm intrigued, and so is John. What is this religious center that has attracted all these uber-rich people and famous folks to its ranks? What methods of betterment are they offering that have led people to choose the Kabbalah Center over a regular church or a synagogue? Now, you know when a bunch of celebrities start doing something, it's not going to stay a secret for long. So the tabloids and newspapers jumped on it to figure out what was up. There were some, a couple kind of stories in the mail and stuff like that where I can remember thinking, what's that about them? But then the newspaper articles start to take a strange turn. They were quoting uh, relatives who were saying, hey, I've lost my daughter, my son. This is all crazy. Something doesn't smell quite right to John. So he goes to the BBC and says, hey, listen, I want to cover this story in my documentary series. There's something strange going on and we need to figure out what it is. John knows he can't do this alone. He needs a team to find out what's really going on in the Kabbalah Center. So he gets in touch with an old friend. A guy called Tony Donnelly, who's a geezer. I was sitting in Gibraltar, having had a, a, a very serious cancer operation that uh, nearly cost me my life. This is Tony, the geezer. Tony sat at home recovering from this operation in Gibraltar when suddenly the phone rings. It's John. And John's telling him all about this place called the Kabbalah Center. I'd read about it in the papers uh, and seen that some stars were involved in it. Madonna even spoke about her involvement on Larry King Live. I'm not, not Jewish in the conventional sense because the Kabbalah is... Um, is a, a belief system that predates religion. Tony doesn't know much more about it, but he knows that John has a nose for good stories, so he's all ears. John explains that he wants Tony's help to find out what's going on inside the Kabbalah Center. But they can't just walk in, guns blazing, and start grilling the people who work there. They need a more subtle approach. So John asks Tony if he'll go undercover. And would I come and secretly film them and prove those claims or disprove them? John wants Tony to be his eyes on the inside. He wants him to be a mole. He said he would pay me for the job, a pint of beer and a sandwich. I'm still waiting for the beer. With the promise of a beer and a sandwich, Tony doesn't need much more convincing. The secret filming gives me a great buzz. Plus, he had done some undercover work in the past, so he knew what he was getting himself into. I've posed as a multimillionaire before, exposing banks and tax frauds and money laundering frauds. So yeah, Tony's a pro. He's feeling confident as they hand him his assignment. My role was quite simple. I had to walk into their building in London, persuade them that I was a multimillionaire and that I was dying of cancer and that I needed their help. Simple enough, right? He has to pose as an inquiring potential member looking to improve his life. But first, he needs to get wired up so they can record everything that Tony sees and feed it back to John at the BBC. The BBC have a special place where they uh, supply you with covert 
uh, equipment. Really? The BBC has a secret room with spy equipment, like a bat cave or a James Bond lair? These are secret cameras. If I told you all that, they wouldn't be secret. Okay, all right. Relax. Double O six point five. Now you have to understand. This is the early 2000s, so the tech is a little clunky, but it's still pretty cool. They fit Tony with a button camera, like the one you see in the movies. This one I had with the recording pack I I put on my back. So, with the battery pack strapped to his back and the camera in his button, Tony heads to a branch of the Kabbalah Center in London on his undercover mission. They've got a very big building. Must have cost a fortune. We're talking big white buildings with gold-tipped black fences outside and huge windows. Tony could get busted at any second. So from the second he walks into the center, he's looking for any opportunity to get information for his mission. And luckily for him, there's a Kabbalah Center worker pretty much waiting to greet him at the front door. They've got a reception area near the entrance. He approaches the woman and works his fabricated backstory into the conversation. I told her I had cancer, and she told me some stories about women, a friend of hers, that uh, had drank the water and was convinced that the water had cured her of cancer. This woman said the water cleanses the cells, and this water she's talking about had been acquired from the Kabbalah Center. It's crazy. Vulnerability when it comes to health will make believers out of a lot of us. So it's kind of understandable that people who are ill believe certain things play a role in curing them. And she said it had great healing powers. And I said, okay, I want to see somebody about this. I want to see them now. Who's in charge? She arranges for him to see someone higher up in the center about the water. Tony sits down for a one-on-one, explains that he has bladder cancer, and asks about the water. And he said that I need you to get this water that they produced. They don't actually produce the water. They buy the water in um, and they claim that if they store it in the building and they pray with the water in the same room and the water picks up the power from those prayers and becomes magical. What the Kabbalah Center teachers say about the water makes Tony furious. And when the recordings get back to John Sweeney, he can't believe what he's hearing. It turned out to be way more crazy and darker than I could have possibly imagined. That's coming up after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done 
felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. So Tony is in the Kabbalah Center in London. He's sitting down with a dude who works at the center who's explaining that members pray over Kabbalah Center water in order to imbue it with special healing properties. He tells Tony, They said it would cure my cancer. To turn my back on the doctors, he told me. Another Kabbalah Center teacher says the water can generate miracles. But it's not as simple as just taking a sip and boom, goodbye malignant cells. They said I needed to drink, drink three bottles a day. And I had this large scar across my stomach. And he told me to splash it over the stomach. And that would cure it. Water, getting rid of scars, that's some special juice. And this dude even says that the water is backed by science. They claim that they've, that they've had it tested scientifically and the molecules in the water, the water they pray over, are completely different from the molecules in other water. And check this out. Depending on your budget, you have two miracle healing options to choose from. They have two sorts of water, two grades. One that the ordinary members pray over and the more expensive water that the others pray over the leaders of the Kabbalah pray over <laughs> but he tells Tony that the more expensive water is more powerful oh wait a minute so the leaders are closer to God I guess when you're just a regular member I guess God doesn't know you well enough for the water to have the extra blessing in it but when you buy the water the leaders prayed over, mm, that's when God puts a special little something in there. But you got to pay for that extra little something. That's what I ended up buying. And it's not all Tony ended up buying. He also bought a set of holy books called the Zohar. They're written in Aramaic. Aramaic is a language that many Jewish writings are printed in. But only a small community of people are able to understand it today. Tony is not one of those people. I can't understand Aramaic, and I told him that. So Tony wouldn't actually be able to read a single word of these books. And he said, it doesn't matter. Just run your finger over the words, and you'll get the power from the words. Well, this power was the power that could cure cancer. Well, damn. If I'm sick, and all I got to do is run my fingers across pages in the book to be healed? Man, that's not a bad deal, huh? Multimillionaire Tony agrees to buy four boxes of water and a set of books for 860 pounds, which is about $1,200 U.S. That wouldn't be much if Tony really was a multimillionaire. But for an ordinary guy, that's a lot of money. I didn't want to give them the money, actually. As a cancer survivor who had been treated and saved by the National Health Service, Tony was pretty pissed that the Kabbalah Center was encouraging him to drink ordinary water instead of relying on real science. And on top of that, they were charging him for this so-called cure. The BBC insisted that we paid them to uh, prove the point, so that's what we did. Tony heads back to the Kabbalah Center with a wad of cash stuffed into his pocket to pay for the water and the books. You should have seen his eyes when I paid out the cash on the table. Things are going smoothly so far, and he's invited back for a big event that evening. There's an, uh, an element of danger in it because you need to get out quick if something goes wrong. So you've always sort of got one eye on the exit. It's a big deal if Tony gets caught. I mean, the BBC, they forked out a lot of money for this investigation. Plus, all the footage will have gone to waste 
and John Sweeney's documentary probably won't make it to air. And who knows how the Kabbalah Center will act if they find out that there's a mole in their midst. With that in mind, Tony's on high alert when he goes to meet other Kabbalah Center members at the London branch. I was the man in black dying of cancer. According to John, Tony had to wear a dark shirt to hide the camera and the button. Otherwise, everyone would see it. Everybody else was wearing white. So you can imagine, Tony is sticking out like a sore thumb. He knows that each time he ventures into the lion's den, he might get caught. But this filming opportunity is just too good to pass up. It's a big group gathering, and everyone there is chanting. Chernobyl, Chernobyl. And guess who's leading the women in their chant? Madonna. All these people believe the chanting will rid Chernobyl of radiation. And I've just done a quick Google search, and Chernobyl is still highly radioactive. So I think it's safe to say that this chanting, it didn't work. After the event, Tony is invited for a meal with some of the Kabbalah Center's big spenders, including Madonna and her then-husband, Guy Ritchie. She sat with her family, Guy Ritchie and the children, on one table, and I sat on the table next to them. Tony asked one of the leaders, hey, why is Madonna here? He said that she wants a better relationship with her husband uh, and wanted to be more tolerant, and she wants to understand and control her moods better. While Madonna is on her spiritual journey to a better life, Tony's just chilling, eating a bland meal. It wasn't a very good meal, chicken and rice, if I remember. And they sat me next to a woman that had been cured of cancer, she said, by drinking the water. Likely a subtle but not so subtle plant to get Tony to invest even more in the healing water. Anybody got a spare $1,000 lying around for some regular water? And just a quick side note, the Guardian actually tested two bottles of the Kabbalah Center water. And if you haven't already guessed, their lab found the water to be just some regular old water. After the dinner, the members stand around chatting. And if you remember, Tony is wearing all black and they're wearing all white. So he's standing out against a sea of white fabric like an ink spot in a milk bowl. So I stood at the corner get a good shot with the film. Tony is so close to having all the footage he needs. He just needs to keep his cover for a little bit longer. But then everyone starts moving around the room. And it was um, a sort of a loving type hugging. Instead of a handshake, they're hugging each other. And Tony's in the corner with a recording device strapped to his back. If anyone gives him a hug, they might feel it, and then he's done for. As soon as that thought crosses his mind, suddenly this dude begins to walk over and opens his arms to Tony. And this chap gave me a cuddle and felt this thing on my back uh, and asked me what it was. Tony has to think quickly. I was on the verge of running out then, actually. He starts to sweat. I told him it was a device to uh, inject me with chemotherapy to deal with the cancer. Tony waits, and then he feels some replacement batteries rattling around in his pocket. It's a bit of a Hail Mary, but he pulls them out. I showed him the batteries. Tony says, oh, these batteries are for the uh, chemo device. Hoping this extra bit of detail is enough to convince the dude. 
and he accepted it. That was too close. I had my final interview with a rabbi. He was the head honcho in London. The conversation isn't going very well. Tony has a lot of questions about the secrets and teachings of the Kabbalah Center. But the rabbi, he keeps diverting the conversation to money. And then he said uh, that he wanted a natural break. So he walked out of the room. Tony sits alone, waiting for the rabbi to return. He came back into the room and then he said to me, just out of the blue, um, you know the reason why the six million Jews died in the Second World War? Unsure of where this conversation is going, Tony answers. I said, no, go on. He said, said, because they didn't have the Kabbalah. They didn't have the light. Wait a damn minute. So this dude is saying the Holocaust happened because they didn't have the Kabbalah? They didn't have the light? That's grounds for a grade A ass whooping. And I imagine Tony felt the same way because he was in shock. So much so that he said nothing. I was just too stunned. You would think that these people are simple or something like that. They're not. They're ordinary people. Some are extremely successful. And you wouldn't think that they would get sucked into a situation like this. But time and time again, you see it. So who is the mastermind behind the Kabbalah Center? This global chain of nonprofits that base their teachings on Jewish mysticism and recruit A-list celebrities? And how have they managed to hook so many people? The Kabbalah Center was founded in the United States by a guy called Philip Berg. He was born to an Orthodox Jewish family in the 20s in Brooklyn, New York. At one point, he studied and was ordained as a rabbi, but he left that life for the business world. He was an insurance salesman. He started teaching about the Zohar, the holy books, from his insurance office at night. He left his wife and seven children to marry Karen, his secretary, in 1971. And over the next couple of years, they started to build the Kabbalah Center that we know today. Since the center's creation, the Bergs have become quite wealthy. Which isn't surprising, since they convinced people to drink three bottles of their expensive water a day. Karen Berg, who had been really quite a a very ordinary-looking woman, started to become something like a princess or a duchess. Her wigs were fantastic. Her clothes were fantastic. According to tax returns, Berg even sold the 10-year copyright of one of his books to the Kabbalah Center International for $2.5 million. And since he's the head of the Kabbalah Center, that means this dude just pretty much wrote himself a check from his own nonprofit. Ain't that convenient. The people at the top of the cult live like gods or demigods, and the people at the bottom live like slaves. While the head honchos are living their lavish life, members are encouraged to donate a lot of money to the Kabbalah Center so they can bring themselves closer to the Creator. Looking from the outside in, it's hard to imagine getting wrapped up in something like this. So, how have so many people been lured in, and why haven't they left? After the break, I sit down with Rick Ross, the cult specialist, not the rapper, to find out. I wanted to understand how people got so deeply involved in the Kabbalah Center 
that they were abandoning their own families to follow the Bergs. Rick Ross is the executive director of the Cult Education Institute, which is an online library about controversial groups and movements. He's also written a book, and he testifies as a court expert regarding destructive authoritarian groups. When people started calling the Kabbalah Center a cult, Rick rolled up his sleeves and went to work. What exactly determines a cult? Like, what is a cult? I think that there are three core characteristics. One is an all-powerful totalitarian leader that becomes an object of worship, is the defining element and the driving force of the group. And then second, that that leader and the group use coercive persuasion to gain undue influence over the members, over the followers. And then finally, that once that undue influence is locked in, it is used to take advantage of and do harm. And according to Rick, the Kabbalah Center ticks all of those boxes. I would define the Kabbalah Center, in my opinion, as a destructive cult. Let's take a look at those criteria. Did the Kabbalah Center have a powerful totalitarian leader that became the object of worship? Check. They actually felt Philip Berg had supernatural powers and that he was unlike any other rabbi, any other leader in the world. Did the center use coercive persuasion to gain influence over the members? Check. I think they instilled in people unreasonable fear. Uh, they would indoctrinate them to believe that the Kabbalah Center was like a protective shield or a, a, an umbrella of uh, protection over them. And that if they dared to step away from that protection, all types of bad things would, would come in their life. And did they use that influence to take advantage of members and cause harm? Check. The, the Hevra, these are full-time staff. They basically were working for largely room and board, maybe a small allowance. They had no health insurance, and they would work very long hours. They would be berated, uh, criticized, uh, torn down emotionally, psychologically by the Bergs, as if nothing they did was ever good enough. Not to mention all the money that the Bergs were asking for. And sexual misconduct claims against one of Philip Berg's sons, claims that resulted in damages of almost $200,000 being paid to a former Kabbalah Center student. It's worth saying that in recent years, according to Rick, the Hevra are compensated and things are slightly different. But back then, things were bad. Considering everything we've heard in this episode, it's no surprise that Rick started receiving complaints. I still continue to receive some complaints about the Kabbalah Center. I think it's fair to say that I received hundreds of complaints over a period of time, uh, perhaps in excess of a thousand. They would come in through email, through phone calls, and people were very distressed. Many of the complaints that Rick received were people asking for help for their loved ones. I've done over 500 interventions to date uh, across the U.S. and internationally to help get people out of these type of groups. What does an, an intervention look like? I mean, 
from my layman perspective, I just want to take a family member and kind of just slap them around a bit to wake them up. But I imagine that's not what you do. <laughs> no, what what happens, it's, it's kind of like a drug or alcohol intervention in the sense that it's a total surprise. The person who's the focus of the intervention has no idea that it's going to happen because otherwise they probably wouldn't show up or they tell people in the group and the group would uh, sabotage the intervention. And then it goes on for about three or four days uh, consecutively, eight hours a day. So you're looking at 24 to 32 hours of time. And so what you're covering during those hours, those days, are how does coercive persuasion work? Uh, How does a group trick you to gain undue influence over you? What techniques do they use? Uh, Number two, why is your family so worried about you? What's happened in your life? And then number three, what about the group uh, do you not know that they've kept from you? They've maintained as a secret that you should know if you're going to continue with this group. Rick once did an intervention for a Kabbalah Center Hevra in England. After talking with her for about three hours, she stood up and she was very angry. And she said, I don't want any part of this. I'm out of here. The family and I had rehearsed what we would do if this happened. One brother followed after her immediately. And they were out in the street, I think, for three or four hours. And he said to her, simply by talking about it, it is not going to hurt the Kabbalah Center or hurt you. If the Kabbalah Center is good, it will stand. She comes back and tells Rick he has exactly one hour to convince her. And then she's out of there. And so I pulled out a file in which I had quite a bit of documentation about the Kabbalah Center and also the complaints that I'd received from former Hevra and others. And I started going through it with her. She doesn't ask to leave again after that. So Rick spends the next two days with her. There was a point where I was showing her that Philip Berg had signed off on certain documents, Dr. Philip Berg. And I said to her, he's not a PhD. He's not a doctor. Why is he signing off Dr. Philip Berg? And I think that began to open up her mind to the possibility that maybe she had been misled. The woman left the Kabbalah Center and never went back. It's hard to say how many people have actually left the Kabbalah Center or how many people have stayed. What we do know, however, is that in 2022, the Kabbalah Center's website says they're turning 100 and asked for, you guessed it, donations to celebrate. They've got over 100,000 followers on Twitter and IG combined, locations in over 40 cities, and they've started their own podcast. Well, shit. We've got a podcast, so perhaps we're on our way to starting our own cult. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. 
Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. It's kind of crazy how this has gotten turned into itself. Like even to this day, people will bring up the Mass Brothers to me and say, oh, I hear they were remelting Hershey's and their chocolate should have only cost a dollar or something like that. And I'm like, I don't know. That's so far from what happened. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.